I am Sarah Vine and this is Sarah Vine's Female Half Hour from Mail Plus. I am joined this week as every week by my friend and co-host Imogen Edwards-Jones. What have you been doing with your week? Well, now I just wanted to ask you how your neighbours. Oh, shh. I, I seem to be living next to Amber and Johnny. Are you? Yes. No, I thought you said they were having a rave. Oh, 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 sorry. Them. Yes, they're a rave. They were having a rave. Yes. I mean, properly, like on the strikes on Tuesday. Yes. I was sitting in my sitting room trying to do work, mm. obviously. And they were, honestly, they decided to... I think it's quite a good way of dealing Cranking with the strikes. Cranking up the tunes. They just cranked up the tunes and cracked <laughs> over a few beers. And I think about half the neighbourhood went round and had a rave. Oh, my goodness. Were you feeling quite elderly sitting there? Were you thinking I might just get my knitting I, out? I came over all sort of, you know, middle class. And Did what you? What a terrible noise you're all making. Oh, these cigaretting as well. <laughs> Everything. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's quite fun. It was, it was actually, I quite enjoyed it. Did, really, you, did they look proxy. like ravers, though, before uh, when you their, moved in? No, no, no. Oh. They're, well, they're not my neighbour neighbours. They're sort of at the back of my garden. Garden. Oh, okay. So they're the sort of, you know, you've got one of those gardens that backs onto another garden. Yes. yes. So you were looking at... They're having the... a barbecue as well. Oh. So what's some nice smells. Oh, my goodness. But the strikes have been a nightmare. Yes, I bet. I mean, a complete nightmare. Yes. I mean, yesterday, London was just insane. Everyone was just so angry. I know. they get Everyone gets a bit, everyone bit fighty punchy. <laughs> yes, they, everyone gets really fighty punchy. And Beatrice was standing, my daughter was standing on a tube platform and some mm. bloke just shoved past her. She nearly fell onto the oh. tracks. Because the platform was really crowded. Of course. And she said, what, what? And he said, you were in my way. What do you mean in your like, way? I, of course I'm in your way. The, everyone's in your way. Yes. We're all standing on a tube platform it's trying to your, find a tube. It's not your personal private train. No. Then I, so then she stood there for about, I think, three quarters of an hour. And then in the end, I had to get in the car and go and get her. So that's the other side effect of the strikes is that we're all taking on fumes because yes. there's literally no way of getting anywhere. Yes, yes. So I'm I'm going to an exhibition on female empowerment today oh, at the British Museum. No idea how I'm going to get there. <laughs> no. Walk. Might just levitate. Levitate. I don't you could, know. You could actually walk from here. Do you think? Yes. Oh, God, I'll, I'll, I'll be so unempowered by the time I get there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally out of buff. <laughs> yeah. But no, I think that's a very good idea. You could walk. It's about 20 minutes. Half Is an it? Hour, fast okay. walk. Okay. Yes. Oh, yeah, we might actually get fit during the... No. 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 Oh, shush. Sh- <laughs> don't worry. It's a silly idea. <laughs> anyway, coming up on today's show, a new book, The Reluctant Carer, lifts the lid on a seldom told story that many of us will one day experience. The book tells the wise, moving and funny story of caring for parents who have become dependents. We'll be joined later by the author. And the Duke of Cambridge, Prince William, is 40. We'll be talking to our resident astrologer, Theresa Chung, about what the stars have in store for our future king. But first... Almost half of all women will experience hair loss at some mm. point. And yet the impact on our self-esteem and well-being is rarely spoken about. I know a lot about this, I'm afraid. Hair loss is talked about so little that 20% of women don't realise that both men and women can be affected. Joining us now is Jordana Cabella, hairdresser and author of The Mindful Hairdresser. Hello. This is something that I know quite a lot about because I've got terrible alopecia and have had since I was about 14 or 15. I mean, Imogen's known me since I was about 20. Yeah. And I always had very thin hair, didn't yes, I? Yes, you were always utterly, utterly miserable about it for a very long time. So I won't swim, I won't do this, what can I put on my hat? Do, yes. I, do I wear a hat, do I wear a scarf? Blah, blah, Scarves. blah. Scarves. Yes, I used to have to avoid the rain always and the wind. The rain. Yep. I always used to have to stand a certain... I mean, my hair loss was right at the front on the mm. top of my head, so mm. really hard to conceal. And I'm 55 now, so when it started falling out, which was 16, I think, there was literally nothing... Nothing, no remedies, no products, no sympathy. No. I remember going to the doctor 
And the thing is, Jordana, and I will actually let you get a word in edgeways. I'm so sorry about this, but I am very obsessed with this. She's just vomiting so, into so, the void. Now. Um, but I will. It's like a confessional. <laughs> pro- I, for me, the main problem with it was was that it's not life-threatening. So you yes. feel really guilty mm. about being obsessed with mm. it. Also, it feels just like vanity. It does. To get on with it. Yeah. Shut up. What's exactly. the matter? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. Anyway, so do you... <laughs> Jordana, please. Speak. Over to you. Well... And first of all, thank you so much for sharing because I guess one of the reasons why I'm here today is because when we talk about hair loss, for some reason we fall into the trap of always talking about male hair loss, perhaps Mm. because it's a little bit more accepted or even expected. You know, the studies and all of the traditional remedies that are available out there are made for men, Mm. which means that a lot of the chemicals that are used to combat hair loss have devastating effects on female physiology, which a lot Mm. of people don't know about. So one of the things that's happened is that we don't talk about female hair loss as much. However, 45% of females at some point in their lives are going to experience hair thinning and hair loss, which is a staggering figure, really, when you think about it. And unfortunately, we don't talk about it enough. And I believe it may be due to the fact that, number one, maybe people feel a little bit embarrassed or there is still a stigma and taboo attached to it. Hair defines us. Hair is our way of expressing our identity. It could be the fabric that we hide behind. You know, um, we hide behind certain features that, you know, we're not necessarily happy with or features that we want to enhance. So it forms such a huge part of our lives and our confidence, self-esteem, our performance at work with intimate Mm. relationships. Mm. The list goes on. No, absolutely. I can remember when I was younger just being really embarrassed about it in the context of boyfriends mm. and mm. also being so pathetically grateful if anyone fancied me. It really was very bad but for myself. There was a lot of, sort of expensive links that you used to go to about yes. trying to disguise it. And yes, I've, I mean, I found that practically... That, you short know, hair. I understood the importance of a good haircut mm. from quite a young age mm-hmm. because, I mean, you're a hairdresser, Jordana, so you'll understand mm. this, but if you have very thin hair or if you have patches of fall- hair falling out... If you have kind of choppy, well-cut hair, you can actually get quite a long way with it, and, unless you're unlucky and the wind blows the wrong way, in, yeah. in which case, you know, you're, you're sort of slightly stuffed. But the other thing that you were saying earlier on about the remedies, when I was pregnant with my two children, mm. my hair didn't fall out. And I had really thick, luxuriant hair mm. for the first time in my life. So it's very hormonal in mm. women. And, of course, if you're taking hair growth hormones, which I think some people mm. are encouraged to do, I imagine that can have quite a detrimental effect. Yeah. Also, the menopause, obviously, their hair falls out a lot. Yes. How well. many of women do you know? I mean, is it most prevalent in the menopause? Because you do hear about, I mean, every menopausal woman I know complains about their hair falling yeah. out, which annoys me because I'm like, you have no idea. Yes. Your hair is not falling out. <laughs> it is definitely out. prevalent in, in menopausal eras. However, if you think about post-breastfeeding, it happens then as well. Any hormonal mm. changes, but also any kind of immunology changes in your body. Mm. So a slightly weakened immune system compromises your body's energy. Because essentially, hair is a non-essential function in our bodies mm. now, which means when our bodies need to redirect any energy, uh, the first thing that, that it does is redirect it from our hair follicles. Mm. The good thing is that our bodies already know how to produce good, healthy hair. Our bodies just need reminding and we need to Mm. find a state of balance. So if Mm. we are, you know, under a lot of stress and our cortisol levels are quite high or if we're going through any hormonal changes, all we need to do is find a product that can counterbalance 
those changes that our bodies are making to encourage optimal hair growth. Many hair follicles can lie dormant for a number of years, and I'm talking like up to seven years, which means all we need to do is find a product to reactivate those dormant follicles and we'll have hair growth again in those areas that you haven't seen hair growth in for years. So, yeah, I mean, my, I think my hair follicles are literally, you know, geriatric. They're basically <laughs> like <a> home. <laughs> well, do you know what, Sarah? I'm going to get you sent out an, an entire product range for Vague More. And I'd Ooh, love to see how okay. you... I'd love to yeah. see how you deal yeah. with it. Yeah. I like to adopt a more of kind of 360 holistic approach to it because it's not a one-size-fits-all. So no. it could be a number of factors that are affecting it. Therefore, we have to you know, address them all. So, for example, we have to address it topically. Mm. Let's talk about our scalp for a second. Our scalp is an extension of our skin. And if mm. we think about how much we look after our, our skin on our face and all these lovely, wonderful rituals that we do, three or four products a day, but we're kind of actually neglecting our scalp and if we look at the scalp it's a very delicate little ecosystem that needs the right kind of variable factors to line up to produce healthy hair growth so if we're not washing our hair regularly and we're overloading it with products which I'm very guilty of myself dry shampoo Mm. is my absolute savior we're actually clogging the pores and we're not actually you know detoxifying and exfoliating the scalp to get rid of any dead skin cells that will actually prohibit the, the hair from piercing through the scalp. So that's one way. So definitely topically looking after our scalp with detoxifying hair serums, which we have. The second thing is internally. You know, if we're not getting the right nutrition from our diet for, for whatever reason, we need to actually consider taking extra zinc and biotin. And then thirdly, well, what are we putting on our hair? You know, because what some shampoos may be doing for our hair may be clogging up the scalp. So we need a shampoo that is really good for hair but also very good for your scalp and stimulating for the scalp and really small lifestyle changes like just a daily massage on your scalp so when either when you're washing your hair or mm. in the morning a daily massage I know it sounds yeah, you a can bit buy silly ma- you can buy those little massage things those what? little plastic yeah, massage but, but even, things they're quite good even the old school method of your even your fingertips yeah. you know mm. that, that just your own stim- hands. It stimulates <laughs> blood vessels yeah and what can we eat I would say that hair loss is very directly related to low iron. So if you're anemic, yeah, right. it's, worth, it's worth getting your... It's worth getting... A, if you are experiencing hair loss, mm. it is worth, I think, going to your doctor and asking for a blood test mm. just to make sure that you've got enough iron, enough vitamin D, vitamin B. The vitamin B vitamins are very key for hair okay. growth. Because if you're deficient in any of those things, it could just sort of be tipping you over the edge. Isn't that, mm. isn't that right? Yeah, Joanna? absolutely. I mean, even even myself as a hairdresser, it's funny because I, I will actually be the first to notice when a client of mine has either switched to a different diet or mm. has kind of crash dieted in, in like maybe yeah. no meat for, for, for a while and hasn't, you know, taken the research into account yeah. to, to supplement those iron Well, that's, that's interesting that you say that because I became a vegetarian when I was a teenager. Oh. I eventually ended up going to see Philip Kingsley. Oh, yeah, he's um, a genius. And sadly now deceased. Mm. And he said, for some people, mm. if you don't eat meat, it's just a real problem for you. Mm. Not, not for everyone, but it, it depends on your sort of metabolism and mm. your thing. But there are certain amino acids like lysine, which you can't really get 
Well, you couldn't really in those days. But mm. I mean, now there are lots of quite good plant-based alternatives, mm. aren't there? Full of stuff. But in those days, you know, you basically just there was. Well, in those it, days, it was just if you were vegetarian, you just didn't eat meat. Yeah, exactly. So the idea mm. that you would actually up pulses or up something exactly. else. So you, you just cut out meat, and you ended yeah. up just eating a lot of pasta. Yeah, basically. Some potatoes. Uh, some potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> ended up sort of in mild malnutrition. Exactly. So, I, so I think with lots of people becoming vegan now, mm. it's quite important to remember that there are things in red meat that are useful for mm. hair and skin. Yeah, and, and do you know what it is? I mean, I'm a vegetarian myself as well, but I, I think it's the sheer volume of the plant substitutes for iron that you need to make sure that you're getting into your diet rather than mm. just having them once a week and hoping for the best. Um, if you think about the amount of grams of, of iron that you're going to need, it is quite yeah. a lot of dark green veg. Just Surprising amounts. In and, <laughs> and being quite mindful of that and just factoring yeah. that in. And if you can't, absolutely just take the supplements. And there are some very good products as well. That, like now you can buy some brilliant hair makeups, mm. which I think are really helpful. And I think if I'd had those when I was experiencing my hair loss, mm. I think I would have felt a lot happier. You know, they're just very fine yeah. kind of sprays. Um, or... And where do you stand on things like extensions and stuff? Because, I mean, they're, they're almost like a sort of poison chalice in a sort of weird yeah. way, aren't they? They well, look they've, great. They've, they've worked brilliantly for me because yeah. I've, I've just sort of reached the point of no return. No, but little bits and pieces oh, at the front yeah. I'm talking about, the mm. ones you can add well, just to fill. In. Yeah, I mean, at, well, at my salon, we, we sort of do them as in, in terms of like we fill the gaps, if you like. Mm. But yeah. I mean, for me, it's putting a plaster and a band-aid over something that isn't actually mm. going to address the root cause. So if you can do both, you know, mm. and I'm a huge advocate for changing whatever you don't like about something. You are well within your right and completely empowered as a female to change that. However, yeah. if we can also at the same time simultaneously address the root cause of it and get on a really nice program of anti-hair loss serum once in the morning and just reusing the right products, a little bit of supplements, then you've got much higher chance of both, you know, addressing the underlying root cause as well as, you know, using products or extensions to also yeah. visibly look thicker. Better. Mm. Thank you, Jordana. That Brilliant. was very helpful. And people can buy your book, The Mindful Hairdresser. Yes. At the moment, it's not quite out yet. So if you want to right. add yourself to the waitlist, it's jordanacabella.co.uk and you can add yourself to the waitlist. That was Jordana Cabella, hairdresser and author of The Mindful Hairdresser. Mm. Our next guest is the author of a new book that, as we record, is out today. Mm -hmm. The book, called The Reluctant Carer, tells the story of what it's like to care for your parents who have become dependent upon you. It is a warm, funny and honest read and I'm pleased to say the author of the book joins us now. Now, you are anonymous, are you not, Mr Reluctant Carer? I am, yes. I've declined to sort of um, to put my name to it, which sounds rather sort of shameful, but no, there are, there are your... practical reasons for that, yeah. Mm. Yes. Mm. Presumably, is your father still alive? Well, I'm not pitching this book as a thriller, but I am... <laughs> I am, there may be some, let's say, additional value in going through the book without knowing quite what right. happens in the end. I mean, mm, things, okay. are, things are different now than they were when I commenced the book in June yeah. 19th, and they're different from when I finished writing it about a year ago as well. Mm. Right. So I'll okay. say that much, yeah. So in essence, your father had a heart attack, I think. Was that right? Yeah, he, so I mean, we didn't know that. At the time, it's hard to look back on it, actually, without sort of seeing different versions of oneself. As anyone who's been through this knows, it's a weird mixture of a period that feels like very... Feels there's a lot of inertia sometimes when you're around old mm. people. Things move quite slowly. But when you reflect on it, it's interesting how different things are from how they mm. seemed at the time. So my dad was never particularly well in his sort mm. of elderly years. He wasn't a 
picture of health, very much a sort of um, product of his times, really, those being the sort of 1930s, 40s and 50s, where, mm. you know, cigarettes and other activities were deemed to be, you know, quite the thing. So when he was actually ill and when he wasn't, it had become quite hard to distinguish, but then he became profoundly ill and then there was nothing else to sort of do. And it turned out that mm. he had various comorbidities, a lot of things going on at the same time. But yeah. one of the kind of ironies of modern medicine is that we've become very good at keeping each other alive. Mm. The quality of that life is much harder to kind of yeah. look after. So yeah, so my so my dad became, uh, was hospitalised, needed a lot of help after he came out of hospital. That then coincided with the end of my own marriage. So I needed somewhere else to live. So I moved back in sort of for my own reasons, partly, but it was also helpful because it sort of mm. put me on the spot to help with, with my dad. And then my mum got ill as well. So mm. in, in a period of just a few months, it went from like, oh, yeah, I'll help to, uh, to this is my life. Yeah. Mm. Can I just ask you how much, because I know you've got siblings, and how much <clears> of a sort of to and fro was there that you were the one who fell on your sword it was just uh, you were the one who was chosen I mean obviously it was <laughs> well, useful for you to but I mean at the same time that must have been quite irritating well uh, well things being one way and being another way at the same time is very much the essence of the book hence the ambivalence mm. of mm. the title um, falling mm. on my sword would be way too heroic a way of looking at it it was more sort of harakiri than that I thrust <laughs> the sword into me in, in a certain <laughs> respect and by virtue of moving into the house and I think certain other circumstantial things within our family mm. you know my, my brother and my sister have kids I don't I also had some work problems would be a, a, a minor way of putting it. So I had the time and I needed to live in the house. So yeah. it just seemed natural. And that, I guess, was kind of the essence of what I thought was my problem, but actually became my insight, if you like, because mm. people mm. would say, oh, it's great what you're doing for your mum and dad. But I could never really feel that because mm. I was aware that it was actually really useful for me. Mm. Um, you know, I had to move back in there. But then what I discovered as I began to write about it was that that disconnect, I think, is there for a lot of people. You don't need the particular kind of trap that I fell into. And all mm. of our lives are bespoke in a certain sense, right? Actually, yeah. I think a lot of people who end up looking after people close to them experience those those shifts of feelings and they experience the sometimes the the conflict between the picture as it appears oh you're doing a good thing and, and the feeling inside yourself which is sometimes mm. not good at all mm. well that's what's so interesting about it because i think a lot of people who look after their elderly parents are portrayed as sort of saints aren't they yes but actually i think that there must be a lot of feelings of conflict I love my parents dearly, but oh my goodness me, my yes. father is a, is a nightmare. Yeah. And, you know, I think, you know, if I was looking after him in that context, there would be a lot of love, but also a lot of fury and generally just frustration. And I think those are very human emotions. I think it's quite important to talk about them. Mm. I mean, did you find that your relationship with your parents changed? I mean, did your father find it difficult being mm, looked after by question. his son? Yeah. Uh, well, I think... No one would want this to be happening to them. I would say, yeah. first and foremost, what one resents, and I've you know, had a few moments myself, when one needs care, there is the embarrassment of that happening. Now, what happened over the sort of years that I was there and the time when I got away is that eventually my dad became so ill that it was beyond what an untrained individual could do mm. because his health changed. So I did then start intersecting with professionals and, you know, and those people were an absolute godsend and... Mm. 
I think there is there was a relief when it was not it's not what you want for your kids I don't think so it's mm. complicated on that front I don't think he would have I don't believe he resented me personally I think he was embarrassed that we had to go through this together but equally and this is particular to my case my, my dad had was it was in the merchant navy so we didn't I always felt like I never saw much of him so in a very strange way and I hope a real way as well it was actually the most time we'd ever spent together we hadn't really done the things one does or, or I mm. see like fathers and sons doing today and partly that's a generational thing you know this yeah. is like this isn't just you know a, an individual that one realizes one is looking after but also a kind of a generation you know there aren't that many of the kind of pre-world war ii children of that depression sort of around mm. you know of the 1930s mm. and the late 1920s so in in a way and i don't think this is just me trying to make the best of a bad lot we became quite close but again but like a lot of close relationships there were flare-ups yeah we did we did mm. fall out did, did you start writing the book in moments of sort of abject loneliness or was it a sort of way of processing or tell me the process a bit about your writing of the book yeah, so I didn't sit down to write a book thinking four or five years later this will be a thing I can I can talk about on a podcast or something. Mm. I started writing out of, I think, a necessity. But I was a teenage diarist, so I had a long... I, and, you know, my job, you know, when it happens is that, you know, I am a writer. So it's always been my instinct. I think that's not a job that I chose either. It's something pathological and necessary to me to kind of get things out in writing so that I can make sense of them in myself. So this became like that. And the situation did offer me a lot of time. Like I said, my life had changed. I was in a kind of identity crisis. I wasn't married anymore. I wasn't employed anymore. I had thought I was an adult, but here I was living like a sort of child again. So that needed processing, and I started writing it down. And I also I started verbally, when I would occasionally see my friends or, or former sort of contacts and stuff, I, I began to talk about it. And you know when you're talking to people and something connects, I think. And I began to realise that these stories that I was telling were not just everyday kind of anecdotes. They were connecting to people who either had been through it or were worried about going through it on, on quite a deep level. And also, thank God, I'd figured out ways for myself to make it funny. And that It is seemed, funny. It's very funny. Thank yeah, you. It's very thank funny. It's really funny. It's very funny. But I think that, I mean, the <laughs> other thing is, is so many people are going to go through this now mm. because, of course... For example, my grandfather died at the age of 68. Yes. So my parents never had to look after him. You yeah. Know. This generation of elderly people, as you said earlier on, are being kept alive with very low quality of life for a very long time. So most of us are going to end up doing what you've just had to do. Mm. I think so it is important. the presenting crisis of that. Well, I mean, obviously it yeah. can go and take its place on the podium with all the other things that confront <laughs> us at this point in history, at which we might have imagined things would be fine. But guess yeah. what? It no. seems they're not. But yeah, yeah it, it is a big one and it's an intimate one and it's an unavoidable one. And it's one that contains within it profound moral contradictions about medication, about quality of life, about how these things are paid for, yeah. about how we do these things culturally. You know, yeah. we are sort of looking back, I think, on a century of nuclear family aspiration and individualism in sort of Western and European culture where you know many of us thought the right thing to do was to go and get more educated and further away from our parents than anyone had ever done mm. before in history and when you get reconnected to that stuff then you know you learn a, you learn a lot about yourself but there are profound challenges here it's an issue for us you know as and, humans and particularly for us as a nation i think and did you and your father talk about his life because i always think you know parents don't tend to talk to their children about their life before they become yeah. parents 
did you discover things about him that you'd never known? And and so in many, you know, so in some ways, was there, you know, something good to be found there? There was absolutely something good to be found in it. And I don't think I'm just pragmatically rearranging the past for the good of my emotional present, if you know what I mean. And this isn't just because I've been fortunate enough to be able to, to write a book in which, you know, a few people seem to be interested about it. Um, yeah, there was some profound good in it. Intimacy in life, one should take it where one finds it. One of, I think, the salvations and pleasures of human existence is that it tends to resist our plans. The days which are deemed to be special can often feel quite weird. But what's great about that is the flip side, which is that the things which are deemed to be sort of we should be wary of and fearful of are often in their way quite wonderful, particularly when they're in the past. I mean, here I am reflecting on it, covered in nobody's breakfast but my own. So, you know, it is, <laughs> it is, it is interesting looking back. And one of, the, one, of the, one of the very good things, I think, about writing a contemporary diary as it happened was that I was able to look back and because our, our brains, our minds, our psychology, whatever you want to call it, we don't quite remember things as they are. And there's lots no. of good reasons for that. So I found, you know, a book, as I'm, you both know, I think, you know, it takes time to edit it. Different people mm. look at it. And things had changed and become slightly rosier in response. So there are certain bits in the book where I look back and I think, well, did you really feel that bad? Are you being harsh here? And I hope I've mm. defended those things because the reality is, is really quite tough. But what coexists with that is our ability as humans to kind of progress and be forgiving I think and incorporate those challenges into into different mm-hmm. versions of who we become so it's a it's a line really that you have to walk I think as a kind of memoirist if I can grandiosely call mm-hmm. myself the, that. Also the real problem with a memoir is that it affects all the other people around it so uh, how did your brother and sister react to you writing about their parents from your point of view? Well, so far, so good. I didn't (laughs) share it with them until a couple of weeks ago. I mean, I was kind of, as the different versions of the book evolved, I became sort of maniacal about sort of controlling it. And I'm convinced that the version which is in the shops today is the best one. Mm. So I thought, well, read that. I want to get, you know, on, on some level, I want, I'm proud of my writing. It isn't a book about a good person, but I hope it's a book by a good writer. So I wanted them to see that. There were a couple of articles which came out about what was going on mm. in 2019, and that went a bit viral and brought the book into life. So I had shown them that, but in the beginning and before I wrote that piece, I didn't tell anyone, and that's one of the reasons for the anonymity. The other one was really my mm. parents' well-being and sort of privacy, because mm. I was I didn't want to self-censor. I didn't know as a writer and as a person and as a child and as a sibling where I was going to go with it. Because I didn't even know whether anyone else was going to read it, once I did start to put it into the world, I thought it would be a shame if the truth of this was compromised by some shyness or some di- some yeah. desire to protect mm. the other people in it. So once I had the book out and actually a few people who weren't in my family had been good enough to look at it, they went, no, no, it's okay, because obviously one is so subjective, particularly with one's mm. own writing and indeed one's own family. They said, it's all right, I can see you love these people. So I was like, all right. And so I did. <laughs> My brother and my sister have seen it now and they've been very mm. kind about it. And that was a big relief, really. I, I began to feel yeah. quite good about having done it in a way that I hadn't because I suppose mm. on some level I was I was anxious about that. Mm. Yeah, I bet. And they've enjoyed it and laughed at the jokes and said, oh, yes, and I remember that as well. Yeah, I mean, I haven't good. actually seen a great... I haven't seen either of them since I sent them the book, but they have been very forthcoming and, and very good. positive. And that's, that's, that's really important. Relief. I mean, we yeah. are blessed 
as a family, I think, and I, and I think a lot of families are, you know, we don't take ourselves too seriously, even though there mm. are serious things that we have had to do. Mm. So, mm. yeah, I think that's the case. And also, you know, in, if it had, I mean, I don't, I had obviously in, been through it in my mind if it was difficult, but it's like, I'm aware it's a very subjective version. It was psychologically, spiritually necessary for me to write this book and everyone would have written their own version of it. Yeah. And I hope that's that's clear in it. I'm not saying this is the definitive history of anything. It's just mm. what happened to me. No, but if, but if you write well, you can always make the personal the universal. Exactly. And that's the key yeah, thing, isn't yeah. it? It's a great well, read. Well, thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> Anonymous. Anonymous. <laughs> Mr. Reluctant Carer. <laughs> thank you. That was The Reluctant Carer, whose book of the same title is out today. It's really funny. It's very funny and very good and very profound. Yes, exactly. Prince William was 40 this week. Mm. Congratulations. I suggested that he buy a pair of nose clippers in my <laughs> I column. Read that. Because yeah, really that's funny. all you need when you get to yes, the age of 40. For your ears as well. For your ears, because it comes mm. to us all. It does. Anyway, here to tell us what the stars have in store for the future heir to the throne mm-hmm. is our resident astrologer, Teresa Chung. Hello, Teresa. Hello, Sarah. Was I right about the nose clippers? <laughs> First of all, he shouldn't be 40, should he? That's way too that's old. silly. That's, I know. Really. That's how old we are. That's the sadness. But tell us, he's cancer, is that right? If I imagine that. Gemini. What is he? No, is no, he? no, cancer. cancer. He's cancer, cancer. yeah. Okay. Yeah, he's yeah, a he, cancerian, yeah. Like the Queen. I mean, when I say he's like the Queen, there's an otherworldliness about his horoscope that obviously I look at it with the benefit of hindsight and of knowing who they are, but it's almost mm. like they have kind of like being plucked for these elevated roles, both of them. And with William, I mean, he really, he will be a great king if the monarchy survives. You know, he will. He's got everything that we would kind of hope for mm. in a monarch. He's got the compassion, the family values, his ability to listen, he's emotional, his love of charity, he's sympathetic. He's married to a very grounded Capricorn who can you know, who's no nonsense and will help him deal with the ceremony, which I think some part of him may get frustrated with that. A bit mm. like his mother, uh, Diana, you know, there's a part of him that all the trappings, not really for mm. him because he is very authentic. But why I say he's authentic because his moon sign, which is his inner being, is in cancer too. And oh, he's right. a sun sign cancer. And people who have the same moon and sun sign, what you see is what you get. And a moon, of course, we're moving into a very mystical time. There's so much interest in mysticism at the moment. And he has mm. so much moon. The moon rules our intuition, our dreams. He really is in tune with the times. Um, yeah. The only thing that I would say, you know, he has this delighted awe about him. He's, he's in awe of a lot of things, but he must watch that he doesn't lose himself mm. in things. There is a, a hint of codependency maybe in there because he is so sensitive. He needs to watch for that. But that's the only is he, thing. Is he quite childlike, do you think? What, that sort of joyful yeah. enthusiasm for yeah. everything? Yeah, a lot of yeah. Cancerians I know are just sort of eternal children. Yeah, I mean, delighted awe. Yes, mm. he is, he is mm. very much like he's discovering life for the very first time and, and just delighted mm. and, and awestruck. I do think he's aware of how privileged he is. He's mm. not entitled. He is aware of it. And I'm sure that Catherine will make sure that he remembers that. Does he bear a grudge, though? Because he seems to be the yes. one who really isn't uh, forgiving Harry, although nobody's no, particularly, but I mean, he really isn't. Well, if you offend a cancer, they will go into their shells, just like the creature, disappear mm. into their hard shells, and their, their shells are so hard to crack. It's mm. more brooding, thinking about it. 
Yes, he has been hurt because he was very protective and responsible around Harry. I think mm. he very much went into the parent role with him. Mm. And then, of course, when a child sort of like spreads their wings, that's a bit hurtful for the person who's mm. been in that role. And he's still adjusting to it and it's going to take a while. Kelsarians are always quite slow moving emotionally, I mm. think. But when oh, they yeah. do Harry's get done, there, it's quite profound. But Harry's done more than spread his wings. He's he's <laughs> taken a bow and arrow and, yeah. and had some shots. And kicked him, yeah, kicked poor old William <laughs> firmly in the teeth. Yes, so I would yeah. imagine that he's quite cross. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, he was brooding. Brooding's more the word for cancers. They don't get cross, they brood. Mm. It, it, again, and that's what he's got to watch, you know, that when you harbour negative thoughts and feelings, mm. that it can impact your health and result in stress. But he's got so much on his plate with his young family and the mm. growing amount of responsibilities. He probably won't have enough much time to brood. So, you know, he probably hasn't got that much time alone or to mm. even think, probably. He's so super busy. But, I mean, he's got a lot of Jupiter in his chart as well, which is linked to good luck, expansion and blessings. As I said, it, you know, he's, he's going to be a really enlightened, compassionate, sympathetic monarch who understands that the monarchy is changing. Mm. He really is going to, he's really got it all there. He's also born well, in summer solstice as well, which is the, a very powerful time, you know, June the 21st is a very powerful mm. time of year from the mystical, mm. magical perspective because it's the midpoint, isn't it? Mm. And we, we enter cancer, which is all about self-reflection, but also getting the energy of the sun, which is mm. that masculine bolt and having the boldness to look within and not be frightened mm. at what you see. Being summer solstice babies, Really magical. I always thought that with Kate, his wife, who's, as you say, is a Capricorn, I always thought he took a very long time to make that decision. Mm. But I, you got the impression that he was thinking very carefully about yes, it. Yes, that's him. He, clearly she was right for him. Clearly yeah. he was passionately in love with her. But he takes forever to mm. make his mind up. Tabs mm. walk mm. sideways, not forward. And, that's <laughs> it. and it's because they are so sensitive. They're so scared of getting hurt. Often, mm. as I said, they go in that shell and they'd rather walk sideways than confront. Mm-hmm. And that, that, is, that is a weakness of the sign. It can be a strength, though, because sometimes mm. you don't want someone who's so confrontational. Mm. Um, you know, there's always potentials and pitfalls within every sun sign. But yeah, he does take forever, mm. forever. But, you know, when they trust, they trust for life. What does his immediate horoscope suggest? I mean, just more of the same. I mean, he's going mm. to grow and grow his family it's huge huge emphasis on family at the moment his children are everything to him he really Mm. is a devoted dad that's going to be you know his future for the time being and then when the time is right all the offices are there Mm. for him to step into the role of king with almost like the heavens aligned he's been chosen it really does have that feel his horoscope being born the summer solstice as well yeah. If the monarchy yeah. holds out... He's the sun king. Oh. <laughs> Bless him. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, if the monarchy holds out, <laughs> you know, yes. it's not just the queen holding it all together, which only time will tell um, yeah. how the younger generation take to this. But if the monarchy holds well, out... Well, I think if anyone can modern... do it... I think if anyone yeah. can save the monarchy, it's probably William. Mm. With, the, yeah. you know, with the younger people who... who He's born really for don't. this role. He's yeah. born for this role. He's a gentle soul. He has the compassion, the emotion the sympathy. He's been through the mill with his own dysfunctional childhood so he can relate. Mm. He is aware that he's privileged. Um, He's not perfect, as I said, brooding, takes grudges, um, he can be obstinate, as crabs can. Mm. He's by no means perfect, but he has the visionary potential and also Mm. that others before self Mm. that is important for a monarch. 
That was our resident astrologer, Teresa Chung, author of the Element Encyclopedia of Birthdays. If you enjoy listening to The Half Hour, why not visit mailplus.co.uk slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and more. If you want to get in touch, tweet us at mailplus, me at Westminster or Imogen at Imogen EJ. You have been listening to The Female Half Hour with me, Sarah Vine. Thanks for listening. <laughs>